Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. As Matt mentioned uh, just a couple moments ago, this week he and I, along with Mario and James Nysong, had the opportunity to flee the balmy temperatures of Greenville and spend a few days in January in Wisconsin. Uh, due to uh, the workshop that we attended, which was a little different than, than many that uh, I've gone to in the past in that it had a bunch of homework for us to do ahead of time to come and to present and, and to get evaluation on while we were at the workshop. And so the combination of being gone most of this week and preparing for the workshop last week meant that there wasn't a lot of time for me to spend in Ephesians chapter 6. So this morning, we are going to briefly interrupt our series on Ephesians and look at 2 Timothy 1 instead. This is for a very spiritual reason. It, it, it was <laughs> for convenience of the preacher uh, to be able to combine some of the, the prep work that I did for the workshop with the prep work for this morning. So that's the underlying logic to an otherwise random interruption in our series on Ephesians. But let, let me quickly add that this message from this passage, this morning for this church, is not random at all in the plan of God. He shapes our circumstances and determines our steps, and I'm grateful for the reminder that an unplanned diversion like this can be. And so I'm eager to see exactly what God has in store for different hearts and lives through the hearing of this word this morning. So would you please anticipate with me as we pray together. Father, thank you that you are the one who determines our steps. Thank you that we can trust you and your love for your people, that what you have for us this morning is exactly what we need. We come because this is your word. We need to hear your voice. And so this is the place that you have shaped and helped and prepared for us to be this morning. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear, to receive the good gifts that you have intended for us. Speak to us now, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I've noticed over the years that it is helpful to somewhat regularly consider my own mortality. I, I, I think part of this began actually um, the gentleman that, that Matt mentioned, Mike Bullmore, who helped uh, put on the workshop that we were at this week. He taught one of our classes at the Pastors College back in 1998 that Matt and I attended together. And one of the assignments that we had from his class was to write a paper on a particular spiritual discipline. And the one that I chose was 
seeking to regularly consider one's own mortality. Now, it's not because I want to be absorbed with the idea of death or have any desire that my time would be soon, quite the opposite, but I find that such exercises help me live for what matters most. Something I find myself constantly distracted and and drifting away from because I usually don't live with a sobriety that recognizes that tomorrow is not guaranteed. So I've sought to make as part of my diet books on that topic. I've taken even at times just uh, little reminders that are more for myself than anything else from making that a part of my screen name. Something that will remind me of that reality or even a signature on an email or the very romantic goodnight to my wife that, that lets her know I hope to have the gift of being with her again by us both waking in the morning. When I observe the life of the Apostle Paul, though, I don't get the sense that he needed to make this an area of discipline. Because he seems to always be on the precipice of eternity. From his encounter with the resurrected Jesus to his imprisonment in Rome, death and or glory never seem far away from Paul. He, he had visited the third heaven as well as endured multiple imprisonments and trials and beatings. Listen to the description that he gives to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says, with, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, a description of his life, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. We see Paul's life seems to be filled with this constant threat of death. Yet, in all of it, there also seems to be a focus, maybe helped produce by his constant threat of death to recognize what is most important in his life as he also has this ongoing burden for all the churches. Can any of us relate, I, at least to that burden, that focus 
I, I don't expect ours to be exactly the same. The specific details, most of us don't have that responsibility, that care for all the churches that he carried with him. But, but when I think of my own death and its inevitability, many things flee from my thoughts. And what is most important to me comes to the surface. The thoughts of my girls. My wife, can we relate to that sharpening focus that the prospect of eternity has on Paul? It's not just a, I don't want to die yet thought that comes to mind, but ultimately I want to be there for those I love. I want to continue to be able to serve them. I don't want them to be without daddy husband Paul's entire ministry it seems was lived with the reality that Tay could be the end for him it's something that his letters reveal that he really seemed to have a peace with yet a constant knowledge that he endured for the sake of others but by the time we reach 2 Timothy, Paul is convinced that now his time has come. He writes a very personal letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. It is his last known correspondence. He is imprisoned in Rome where history tells us he will indeed be martyred. Near the end of this letter, 2 Timothy, he famously tells Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but all those who have loved his appearing. He knew that his time had come when he penned this letter to Timothy. Now of course we rightly revere Paul for his faithful selfless commitment to the expansion of the gospel mission. He pioneered missionary journeys and took the message about Jesus to the Gentiles and ultimately to the ends of the then known world. He deserves our respect. His work was unprecedented and it is unrivaled. However, this point in Paul's life was no time for self-satisfaction or pats on the back self-congratulations during his last days. His daily pressure and anxiety for all the churches was, well, it was well-founded. His letter to Timothy names example after example of specific friends and disciples who have deserted Paul and have deserted the faith. Many now opposing the church in Paul's final days. He mentions in 
in chapter 1, verse 15, just a little bit further than where we'll be at this morning, that all who were in Asia have deserted me. We have this sense of an apostle who's been abandoned by so many disciples, so many friends. And at the end of his life, this is what he sees before him as he has and carries this concern for these churches and souls that he loves. Paul wasn't viewing his ministry with the success that we often perceive now as he was facing his final days. But he hadn't given up either. In this last letter to Timothy, we read the words of an apostle sobered by the state of the mission and by his own impending death. Timothy is the man Paul is passing his torch to to care for churches and to train up faithful men. So at this juncture of Paul's life and the church's need, what is the message that Paul passes on? Read with me in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, beginning in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The structure of, of this passage is really fairly simple. We see this opening call to Timothy as a minister of the Gospel. In verses 6-9. through nine. And then, that transitions to the Gospel message itself in verses 9 and 10 before ending with Paul's own testimony of God's faithfulness to His call. Verses 11 and 12. And the theme that I think we see emerging is that, emerging is that we are called to serve and even to suffer for the Gospel of God. Because we are empowered by the God of the Gospel. So informed by that structure and that theme, we'll look at two points this morning. Number one, we are called to serve and suffer for the Gospel of God. And number two, 
We are empowered by the God of the gospel. Number one, we're called to serve and suffer for the gospel of God. We're, we're going to begin just with the first part of that statement. that We are called to serve and suffer. In verse 6, Paul calls Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God in him through the laying on of Paul's hands. But we don't have to wonder exactly what was this gift that, that Paul is referring to. Is this the gospel message? Is it his ordination? Because we're told in, in 1 Timothy, the earlier letter Paul wrote to Timothy, what he's referring to. In 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 16, we can read exactly what this gift is. Paul writes, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearing. This, this gift that was imparted to Timothy by the laying on of hands of Paul and the elders is his call to ministry, in particular, his call to minister the Word of God through preaching and teaching. He has a call to be faithful to continue in what he has been taught, to be faithful to the Scriptures themselves. It is the call that he has received by God and imparted through these men recognized by his church. This gift of God highlights Timothy's responsibility and call to preach and teach God's Word. And so, Paul is reminding Timothy of the reason that he has been called and encourages him to fan into flame the gift that he has because, Timothy, it has never been more needed. Scripture doesn't record Paul's death, but history tells us Paul was beheaded during the reign of Emperor Nero whose rule was marked by horrible persecution of Christians. It was not popular to be a Christian during the time of this writing. In fact, it could be quite dangerous. This is likely a reason why so many listed in this letter had already abandoned the faith through the persecution that had come against them. So he calls Timothy to preach, to be faithful, to fan into flame the gift of God. But in doing so, Paul's also very aware what else he's calling Timothy to. And so he adds on, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering. Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. I know it doesn't look like things are going our way right now. 
but be willing to share in the suffering that will come. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me as I sit alone in prison awaiting my trial, my death. Seems Paul had realistic expectations regarding how all of this was going to end for him. But that didn't mean defeat in Paul's eyes. And he didn't want it to be seen as defeat in Timothy's eyes. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. A suffering Savior is foolishness to many. And the suffering of His servants can seem like He is weak. But that is not the case. If our Savior and King suffered for us, is it so strange that He would call us to suffer as well? Are we to be spared that which He did not spare Himself? His goal for us in this life is not the avoidance of pain or suffering, but it's also not suffering for suffering's sake. It's not meaningless suffering. Jesus didn't suffer because there was some glory in suffering itself, but because life for us was to be found through His suffering. Paul's suffering was similar. Not that anyone was saved through Paul's suffering, but because he endured suffering. Instead of giving up and abandoning the cause, so that the good news about salvation through Jesus continued to go forward. Even when it meant Paul's pain, Paul's imprisonment, lashes, and beating, and danger at every turn. He endured the suffering for his own benefit. Oh, he endured for those that he was serving, for those who had not yet heard. He remained faithful. And he suffered the consequences. So as Paul's suffering was soon to be over, he pleads that Timothy likewise would value the good news about Jesus as worth suffering for. The Gospel of God does not stand unopposed in this world and without individuals who value it as worthy of yielding their comfort and perseverance and at times their very lives for, it will not go forward in a dark and hostile world. Now, this isn't a call to go search for suffering. He isn't telling Timothy, here are the best places you can go. You can suffer a lot. You can get a lot of extra points. No, he's just saying, He's just recognizing it will come. As you're faithful, as you preach, as you fan into the flame the gift that you've been given, a suffering will come. For Paul, it meant a prison cell, but for each believer, it will take its own form. Through the rest of this letter, Paul doesn't equate suffering with bodily harm or untimely death. 
as much as He does a life lived like Jesus is worth it. No matter what circumstance someone finds themselves in, He's more valuable. And whatever consequences come as a result of that. The second part of point number one is for the Gospel. We're called to serve and to suffer for the Gospel. Right after Paul calls Timothy to not be ashamed and to share in the suffering for the Gospel, he launches into a beautiful description of the Gospel itself. In verse 9, he goes, who saved us? Talking about God. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and His own grace, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. This is no generic accounting of the Gospel by Paul. So I want us to give some specific attention to the particular elements of God's rescue that he emphasizes here. It begins with the reality that this is not because of our works that we have been saved. And anyone being called to suffer must remember that their suffering is not a merit that rescues them. In the dark ages, this was not an uncommon thought. That it was thought that we grew closer to God by our pain and our suffering. That's not what Paul is saying here. It's not a work that gets us to God. It's not a work on which we stand before God. Our salvation is all of grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began also seems important for those called to endure suffering. This work of God on our behalf, it far predates us and whatever He is calling us to go through. But His salvation isn't something that remained in the mind of God before the ages began. Instead, it has been manifested. It has been made known through His appearing. The appearing of the Savior, Christ Jesus. Friends, He didn't just have a good idea about saving us. He really came. He doesn't just call His servants to suffer for Him. He came to suffer for his servants. He suffered to make us his children. But he didn't just appear us appear among us so that he could suffer for us. That wasn't the end of the story. He also came to abolish death and bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. He appeared to reveal That suffering for the Christian would never be the end of the story. He appeared in order to proclaim life and immortality by defeating death and sin through His own resurrection. All who suffer for Him in this life need to see that there is light and life at the end of the tunnel. 
whatever we go through now, it is temporary. His death and resurrection brought life forevermore. Immortality to Adam's fallen race. This is good news. This is why Jesus is worth it. What we have in Him is so worthwhile that any suffering we undergo in this life pales in comparison to the glory of the gift and the glory of the giver. Jesus told His followers, it is better to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye in order to be faithful. Because what is gained is so much more valuable eternally than what is lost temporarily in our sense of touch or sight. Now, I'm not encouraging anybody to go cut anything off. But, Jesus is saying it because the principle is true. If it were to that degree, if that's what was required of you to utterly lose all touch by this hand being gone, what awaits you is far more glorious and worth it. Every moment of lack, every moment of pain, every look of disgust from the stub that's there, it's worth it. It's worth it. Going through life without sight for his gospel he says it's worth it likewise what we lose in riches or reputation or status or even our own safety because of our allegiance to Christ and His people will be made up a multitude of times over by the King of all creation and the Judge of all the earth. If He calls us to suffer, it is because He has a greater prize awaiting us than the fleeting comforts and passing popularity of this world. I need an eternal perspective in order to rightly see my temporal circumstances. To get perspective on today and what I'm wrestling with and, and struggling with. The trials that I feel I have to endure and the woe is me attitude that can come. I need the view of something much greater than today. Paul is seeking to provide that here. I, I can get so caught up with going through the motions and the necessities of life, the trip to the grocery store, the time at the kids' soccer games, mowing the lawn, being stuck in traffic, hearing the constant dripping of man-centered, me-centered, me God-detesting dreck that pervades our airways and screens of every size that I can lose sight easily of who is really in charge of all of this. That He isn't cowering in some corner over the state of our nation 
or our world. He isn't game planning a last second desperation Hail Mary pass in hopes that something good might come out of all of this. He isn't pacing back and forth wearing ruts in the streets of gold anxiously wringing his hands over how things will turn out down here. No. He came. He came as one of us. He saw firsthand our depravity and our helplessness. And He conquered our sin and all its consequences by giving His own life. And right now, He prepares a place for us because the outcome of His work is not in question. He is effective in all His plans and in all His work. And the picture given to us of Him in this current age is not of an exiled king helpless to intervene in His kingdom. Instead, it's a picture of Him seated right now on the throne at the right hand of God the Father reigning over all creation waiting for just the right moment when He will return and put all things in their proper order, in their proper place. That day when every knee will bow before Him and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God. He isn't helpless. He's just waiting. We aren't helpless. We shouldn't be hopeless. Our God reigns now and forevermore. So, we are called to serve and suffer for the gospel of God because we are empowered by the God of the Gospel. We started out viewing this letter from the perspective of the author, the Apostle Paul. At the end of his life, with the care of the churches on his heart as he sits in prison, awaiting trial. What about the man he is writing to? Who has traveled with Paul for years. Who has been by his side as different congregations were birthed and now pastoring one of those congregations himself. Let's consider this letter from Timothy's perspective as well. He was always the tag-along to Paul's ministry. How adequate does he feel when Paul continues on his way and he is left to care for this church? How much more might those feelings be amplified now that Paul is declaring that the inevitable occasion of his own passing is now at hand? Paul was always there for Timothy to go to, to look to. If Paul felt alone in his prison cell, how do you think Timothy felt knowing his mentor and leader was about to depart not for the next city, but for the next life? 
the people Paul names in this letter as having departed, they, they weren't folks that have simply departed Paul alone, but Timothy as well. Likely these are men that he knew that he was envisioning would be standing beside him when Paul was gone. And now they are gone too. Some of them even stirring up trouble for this still-fledgling mission of Christ followers. I doubt there's anyone that could really relate with Joshua when he was tasked with taking over after Moses was going. Or maybe the disciples as they watched their Lord ascend more than Timothy could in these days. Joshua recounted God saying to him, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. I will not leave you or forsake you. It's the same assurance that Christ gave to the disciples, isn't it? Be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So, what encouragement does Paul give to Timothy to strengthen him in his hour of need? Our second point is that we are empowered by the gospel. The gospel is worth any call to serve that we receive and any subsequent suffering that we undergo for Him. His eternal treasures far outweigh the fleeting pain and trials and hardships that we undergo in this life. Paul uses the rest of this passage to reflect on the testimony of his own ministry. And he mirrors his own testimony with the call he has just given Timothy to fan the flame. Paul reminds Timothy that he was saved and called to a holy calling. And then we hear him recounting that for the gospel of Jesus Christ, he himself, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. He himself had a similar calling. That this is the reason that Paul is suffering right now as he does. Again, echoing this, this call, this reason that he exhorts Timothy to share in the suffering for the gospel. He tells Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, and then he declares that he himself is not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, just as he sought to call to remembrance for Timothy, the God who did not give Timothy a spirit of fear. Know the God that has given you this gift, Timothy. He has not given you a spirit of fear. He's given you one of love, power and love and self-control. And he exhorts him to hold fast to what he knows to be true about the one who is empowering him. The same statement that Paul's making. I, I know whom I have believed. Remember that, Timothy. You remember in whom you have believed. The kind of God he is and the kind of gifts he gives as he calls you to what he calls you. Again and again, we see Paul mirroring the call to Timothy and God's activity in Timothy's life with reminders of God's faithfulness in his own life. 
Paul knows that like Joshua or like the disciples, Timothy needs to be reassured that the same God is with him. Just because Paul is about to depart doesn't mean that God is leaving the building. That's why he highlights these eternal elements of the gospel before the ages began. Abolishing death, bringing life and immortality to light. Those aren't part of every recounting of Paul in the different letters that he has of the gospel. He wants these elements in particular to be a comfort to Timothy right now as he considers what is before him. In these verses, Paul calls Timothy to action, even to the point of suffering. But the much larger emphasis in these verses isn't on action and responsibility. Instead, it's on the kind faithfulness of God. Not just in the middle gospel section, which we've already highlighted, but I purposely did not highlight portions of the phrases used throughout as he's exhorting Timothy so that we could see the volume of them together. Seeing that what Timothy is being asked to fan into flame, well, that's the gift of God. This isn't something that he has to work up, that he has to make happen on his own, that he is left to his own devices. Timothy, remember, this is the gift of God. You have this gift because he has carefully, purposely crafted you to be the one to use this gift for the benefit of His people. This gift has been given by the generous and wise God, a, gift, God, a good God who knows how to give good gifts. Indeed, we see what kind of spirit does He give. Not a spirit of fear, but of power and love self-control. We already noted that, that Timothy was called to suffer for the gospel, but how is he to do this? By the power of God. Again, not up to just his own ability to endure or slog it through or do enough for Jesus. Timothy, not being left alone in this call that you've been given. It's God's gift that He's given you. It's His Spirit in which He's enabled you to do it by. Even the suffering that will inevitably happen, that, my friend, is by the power of God. Not your own ability to hang on and outlast. The same God who saved us. Oh, that's, that's another gift. who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. More gifts. More empowerment by the hand of God. God's grace, His gifts, His power, His Spirit, for and by His good news. These are the things that 
are all over Timothy's call. The same things that fuel Paul in his ministry and have for decades. The same Gospel for which he was made a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. The same Gospel for which he is currently suffering and able to endure by. And the same God that gives him the reason to not be ashamed. He mirrors time and again Timothy's call with his own testimony. There's only one point in this back and forth between call and testimony where the account diverges. And I think it's very purposeful by Paul in order to grab Timothy's attention. Line for line, it seems to match up almost exactly until we get to the initial exhortation to Timothy and the concluding thought from Paul. The initial call for Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God is paired with Paul's declaration that he is convinced that God is able to guard until that day the gift that was entrusted to him. At this passing of the torch, Paul's ministry is nearly complete. He has fought the good fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. And he calls Timothy to the hard work that, he has, that Paul has been engaged in to fan the gift given him into flame. But only under the umbrella that all of this is entrusted to God. God is the only one that is able to guard it and us until that day. We work in His gifts, with His gifts, because He keeps us until that day when our race is finished and He calls us home. I think the summary of what Paul is trying to persuade Timothy of in this passage can be found by bringing the first verse and the last one together. Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God because he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to us. It's a call to a seemingly impossible task enveloped in the promise of an all-powerful God. We are called to serve and even to suffer for the gospel of God because we are empowered by the God of the gospel. Now obviously for us, there are points of disconnect with a passage like this. Paul and Timothy served in unique roles in the establishment of the New Testament church. None of us are in their league at all. None of us are in their shoes. But there's still plenty here for us to glean and to benefit from. While most of us will likely never face anything close to the persecution that Paul and Timothy encountered and endured, we are living in an increasingly anti-Christian environment. But our attention isn't to be fixed on how we might be called to share in suffering. That's not to be our primary concern. Rather, the call is to fan into flame. Fan into flame the gift of God given to us. Like Paul, like Timothy, we can trust Him to guard 
to guard us and that gift until that day. What he has given to us. We may not be called to the same level of responsibility or teaching or preaching or leading that Timothy was being entrusted with, but we do have contexts. We do have parallels. We do have places where we are called to teach or exhort or share with our families, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our classmates, with our co-workers. None of us will find ourselves on trial before Nero, but we are all called to be light in the darkness of our current enlightened technological age. So where are you tempted to think that God has left the building? Is it in your marriage or your family? At your workplace or school with your health? your future where do you need to see God as with you the spirit of power with you of love enabling you of self control helping you in your time of need for what trial or temptation do you need to see the greatness of God's eternal salvation? For some here, it, it may be yielding to Him for the first time. Or maybe, for others, it's, it's a persistent sin. Or a fear screaming in your ear that God's grace is not sufficient for you. Where do you need to see Him? and His eternal salvation? Are there places where you are more aware of your suffering than you are of His suffering for you? Where are we tempted to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? In the classroom, in the boardroom, in the gym, in the supermarket, or around our own dinner tables? On Facebook or Twitter? Are there places we shrink back because there might be suffering involved? Including everyday suffering of single-mindedness in a world full of distractions or being more concerned for Christ's reputation than our own. Persevering even when fruit isn't visible. Do we really see Jesus and His amazing rescue as worth it? Worth our service? Worth even suffering for? Are we looking for something greater than Him abolishing death and bringing life and immortality to light before we're willing to step out on a limb for Him? Guess what? He died for that sin too for our laziness, for our fearfulness, for our running in the other direction like Jonah. He died for that. He knew all of that about us. And He still died to forgive all our sins. 
And he still calls us. Weak, sinful. Still calls all of us to his work. That he might get all the glory. So, fan into flame the gift of God. For he is able to guard until that day that which he has entrusted to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you did come. Thank you that you did come to rescue us. It was not because of what we could offer to you. Not because of the prizes you get when you get us. Because you love to show your glory. And the weak and the sinful. That you might get all the glory. Lord, help us in those places where we're more aware of, of our suffering, of our struggle than we are of your salvation. Your suffering on our behalf. Lord, help us to respond to your call. Fan into flame the gifts that you have given us. That your gospel might continue to grow and spread. Help us to see that's more glorious than the pain or the trouble or even suffering that it causes us. Help us to see you as worth it, Jesus, for you truly are. In your great name we pray. Amen. Amen.